Joshua chapter 1. It's been different, interesting to hear the different reactions that people have had when I tell them that my family and I are moving to the Middle East. Here are the top four. <laughs> One of them is, wow, that's a big change. Another one is, wow, that must be a lot of work to get all your life moved over there. The third, and this is more common even, is how does your family feel about this? And the most perhaps common reaction of all is people say to me, are you scared? Are you afraid? Are you, aren't you a little bit worried? You know, be safe kind of response. But, you know, I think we could flip it around. And I think all of those reactions and questions are reactions and questions that someone could have for you here at South Shore Baptist Church. Hey, South Shore Baptist Church, wow, that's a big change. Hey, South Shore Baptist Church, this is going to be a lot of work, isn't it? Hey, South Shore Baptist Church, how does your family feel about this? You know, you've, you've been here, you have your kids here, this is like your church, and now things are changing significantly. Hey, South Shore Baptist Church, aren't you scared? Aren't you worried about what's next? You see, I don't think this is just a story of God interrupting my life and my family's life and Pastor Seth's life and Cindy's life. This is a story about God interrupting your lives and, and the life and the story of this church. God is not just calling the Rennies and the Rogers on a crazy new adventure. God is calling South Shore Baptist Church to a new adventure of faith. And, and so as I thought about this second-to-last sermon, I, I wanted to share with you a text that has been helping me as I face those questions, and I pray would help you as you face those questions. It's a text that actually that our, our own family has been reading in our family Bible time, and uh, we've been reading through the book of Joshua. And so I want to share with you Joshua chapter 1 verses 1 to 9, and it's helped me as I face those kinds of questions and reactions and uncertainties. Um, in fact, this is a text, interestingly, that uh, one of our elders, Kevin Jameson, preached on this summer. So I, I'm not sure if we've ever had the same text preached twice in a year uh, at, a, at our church, but I think this is a fitting text. So I, I'm following in Brother Jameson's footsteps and just want to share this text with you again as a kind of bookend to uh, this phase of our journey together. So let me read Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you Every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. 
Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead this people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This story takes place uh, at the edge of the Jordan River, at the edge of the Promised Land. If you can imagine the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel and then the Jordan River meandering south down to the Dead Sea with, with the land of Israel over here in the Mediterranean Ocean. And so here the Israelites camped down at the southern end of the Jordan River ready to cross over. And it's been quite a journey to get there. It's been 40 years to get there. The Israelites were in Egypt, they were slaves, and God raised up Moses, and Moses brought them out of Egypt through, the, through great miracles and, and plagues that he inflicted on the Egyptians, and then there was the Passover sacrifice, then the Israelites went through the Red Sea, and they came out the Sea of Death, and the, and the Egyptians were drowned, and then Moses led them through the wilderness, and he brought them to Mount Sinai, and there God made a covenant with them and gave them his law. And then they completed the journey, and they went right up to the edge of the promised land and fail. <laughs> the, the Israelites wouldn't go into the promised land. They, 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 not, they didn't just chicken out. They rebelled against God. And they said, we, we're not going to trust God. We're not going in. And so God said, fine, you're not going in. And so he sent them on a 40-year wander through the wilderness until every last one of that generation died in the desert. And once that was over, once the, the unbelief had been purged, then Joshua, the, uh, the aide of Moses, now brings the next generation of the Israelites back to the edge of the promised land. So this is like we're going into the promised land 2.0. Moses is dead. We're going to do this again. It's time. We're not going to fail this time. So this is, a, this is an incredible moment in Israel's history. And here God gives Joshua three commands. Command number one, go in. (laughs) Go. He says in verse two, get ready to cross the Jordan River. Don't turn back like your father's generation did. You're going in. And you can go in confidently and take this land and invade this land because, why? Because they're this super awesome military power? No, because God is with them. 
You know, he says, verse 5, no one's going to be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. You're going to beat everybody when you go in. You're going to conquer everybody. Why? Because as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's God's presence that gives the victory. Israel is not going to win because they are militarily savvy or because they, they, they have some tactics or experience. Israel's going to win because they got one secret weapon, God. God's with them, they're going to win. If God leaves them, they'll lose. That's it. Their whole strategy is we have God, we're obeying God. That's it. And so based on that strategy, they can go in, which then leads to the second commandment, which is be strong and courageous. So in light of the fact that God is with you, be strong and courageous. It's three times in this passage. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Yes, yeah, matter of fact, I think I have commanded you. In fact, twice, but we'll do it again. Be strong and courageous. And in case you, you don't understand that, let me put it in the negative. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. And then even at the end of the chapter, you know, we, we didn't read the whole thing, but then Joshua has some uh, conversation with the, the Israelites, and, and look what they say to him. Look at the very last sentence of chapter 1. They, the Israelites say, only be strong and courageous. So Joshua is getting a message. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. So God is not only giving Joshua an action, go invade. He's also giving him an attitude. Do it with courage and fearlessness, without discouragement, without worry. Just go in. I know it seems crazy. I know this looks like a suicide mission. It's not. You're going to win because I'm with you, so be strong and courageous. And then there's the third command that God gives to Joshua. And this is the surprise. This is the one that... that you know, if, if you're following, kind of like, go in, because I'm with you. All right, got it. Be strong and courageous, got it. You know, what would be the third command that you would guess? I, I would think it would be something like, now go sharpen your swords. Get your armor on. You know, go, you know, craft some weapons. Let's, let's make, go make a military plan. But what's the third command? It's in verse 7 and 8. The third command is, study the Bible. What? You know, look at verse 7. He says, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. So your part in this, Joshua, is not only to go and be strong and courageous, but you need to be a man of the word. This is your weapon. This is your sword, Joshua. This is how you're going to conquer, is by trusting my word, knowing my word, and then, of course, doing my word. Not just being a knowledge expert, but being an obedient servant who knows God's word. Now, based on what we studied last Sunday, this makes sense, doesn't it? Because remember last Sunday, that text, who is the Lord near to? Who does God draw close to? Who is God with? The one who is, remember, humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. So that's who God backs. That's who God puts his capital behind. That's the one that God is like, I'm, I'm going to fight for him, is the one who trembles at my word. 
And so Joshua, the most important thing you're going to do is be an obedient servant. You're going to do what I say. And if you do, I'm going to be with you. And this is going to be a cakewalk. We're going to win. We're going to do this. Such an encouraging passage. Probably you can see just kind of intuitively why this passage has been encouraging to me as I'm thinking about going, as I'm thinking about being strong and courageous and all the natural fears. And, and, and probably you can even guess why this is a helpful passage to you because it's, it's a new phase and, you know, Moses, your servant, is, is about to die. <laughs> you know, I used to be Joshua, but now I'm Moses. <laughs> and I'm about dead. And the, the new Joshua search committee is operating. So it's a new day, and you know, be strong and courageous. But, but I actually, but before we go there to like just be strong and courageous and all that, I, I actually want to push this a little bit further. And, and I want to I suggest that, that not only are there kind of like general teachings here, like, ah, oh, be courageous in times of change or something like that, I want to argue that we as Christians in the New Testament actually have our own Joshua 1 moment that it's actually more crisp than that, that there's a stronger connection than just kind of generically don't be afraid, all right? But, but we also have been given our command by our Yeshua, our Joshua, who has given us a command, and he's given a charge to the new people of God under the new covenant, and it's one that you're familiar with. And so I want to take you to another familiar text that you, you probably have heard, but, but perhaps have never connected these two texts together. You know, it's, it's always great when, when there's a familiar text here and a familiar text there, and then suddenly we see how, how God has been weaving one story through both of these texts. So I want you to turn now to the New Testament, a very familiar passage, Matthew chapter 28. Verse 18, verse 16, it's on page 989 in the Pew Bible. Page 989, Matthew 28. The Great Commission, a great text to look at today. We have one of our missionaries with us, Dave Burgoyne from, um, from overseas, Middle East region. And uh, it's great to have him here. He's going to be speaking later. I hope you go listen during Sunday school to Dave. But uh, here's, here's the commandment. Here's the missionary mandate. Let me read it. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read verses 16 to 20. And what I want you to do is just in your mind, be just thinking about these two texts at the same time. What's similar between Joshua 1 and Matthew 28? What's different? Just kind of start your own mental comparison list between the similarities and the differences. Okay, here we go. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Could you hear similarities and differences? Let me, let me point out four similarities that at least I, I see as I try to observe the text. Here's similarity number one, just real quick. Both of these stories take place after 
God's great act of salvation. So in the Old Covenant, God's great act of salvation is the exodus from Egypt, the Passover lamb, then the crossing of the Red Sea. The the, the Passover in the Old Testament is the Good Friday of the Old Testament. And, And the crossing of the Red Sea is the Easter Sunday of the Old Testament. And so God has saved his people from slavery and brought them out, and now they're at a crossroads. And so it is in Matthew 28. The great exodus has taken place in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for our sins. And Jesus Christ went into into the waters of death in the grave, and he's come out the other side. And he's rescued his people from a great slavery, but from the greatest slavery, not slavery to Pharaoh, not slavery to Rome, not slavery to high taxation or whatever you consider <laughs> slavery today. The greatest slavery of all, of which all of us are slaves, are sins. He's rescued us from, from the, the curse of our sin, that all of us are sinful people in need of a Savior, in need of deliverance. Our, our sin is so multifaceted and deep and, and so entrenched in us. And without this deliverance, we, we are under the judgment of God. But the amazing thing is that God has sent His own Son, Jesus, to bear our sins on the cross. And, and when, that, when that blood, like in the Old Testament, when the blood is put over our homes, and and we come underneath the blood of Jesus on the cross. We are protected from the wrath of God and the judgment of God that came on Egypt. We've been saved from judgment and hell. And so so both of these stories are are taking place just in the, the afterglow of the great acts of God's saving work, the first exodus and the second exodus of which the first exodus was a sign pointer and a prefigurement. Here's a second parallel. In both texts, we're supposed to go. Cross over. Second text, go to all nations. So so there is in both texts an assumption of actual geographic movement, that we actually have to get our bodies up and go from where we are to another place. We have to to go do something. And then a third parallel. You'll notice that in both texts, there's an emphasis on obedience to God's Word. That in one text, you have Joshua. You've got to obey the Word, listen to God's Word, study the Word. And in this one, you have Jesus giving commandments that the disciples are supposed to obey. And then they're supposed to teach disciples. Do you see that in verse 20? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So in both cases, God is raising up a people who are fundamentally marked by obedience to his word in both cases. And then the fourth correspondence that I see between these two texts, maybe there's more, but these are four I I just wanted to point out, is that God is with us. You know, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I have all the authority. And then look at the very end. I am surely with you always to the very end of the age. He's still with us. He's still with us. Jesus Christ, who has all authority, is with us. And that's where it gets a little bit confusing, right? Because it's like, wait a minute, is Jesus the Joshua figure? Or is Jesus the God figure? Because God's the one who says, I'm going to be with you. So is he like the Joshua? Is he like the, the man? Or is he like God? And of course, the answer is, yes, he is. He's the God-man. 
Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is both our Joshua, but he's also God Almighty, Yahweh in the flesh, who comes and says to us, I am with you to the very end of the age. And so we have the same kind of and even a greater confidence than Joshua had that Jesus himself is with us. There are differences, though. Do you see the differences? Let me point out two differences real quick. Difference number one, that the geographic target in Matthew is much, much, much bigger than the geographic target in Joshua. You know, Joshua has like all these like, you know, you must go to the Great River, the Hittites, and all that. And, and I'm sure you knew exactly, we all know exactly where those places were on the map. But if, if you could take like a world map, right, and you could take a, a black, you know, Sharpie marker and draw a boundary around all the places that are listed in Joshua's commandment and then look at the world map and then see where that territory is, what you would be struck by is, man, that was really small. You know, Israel's a very small patch of land. It's not very big. You know, I, I think they say, like, the fighter jets can fly over it in, like, 10 seconds, you know, just, or, you know, a minute or something, just, you know, across the whole country. Um, but Jesus is like, you're going the whole world, all nations, all nations, whole map, everywhere is what I'm taking. I, I am claiming for myself all nations, people from all nations is mine, and you're going to go get them and make disciples. It's just a huge commandment, right? But not only is, is it a, a bigger commandment, not only is that one difference, it's also a very different kind of warfare. Israel's warfare in the Old Testament was a geopolitical, earthly kingdom, and, and so nations, literal geopolitical nations that were very wicked had to be displaced so that God's nation could be on earth. But under the new covenant, it is a spiritual invasion. There's, there's no bloodshed. Christians are never to take up the sword. Christians are never to, to use violence or force ever, ever to spread the gospel. It's antithetical to the gospel. Instead, we, we wage our war through suffering and through prayer and through preaching the good news of Jesus. We, this is our weapon right here. That's as, that's as swordy as we get as we go and we just tell people about Jesus. It, it's a very weak, foolish kind of warfare that we wage. And it's, the goal is not to, to kill, but to, to make alive, to make disciples of all nations. And so this is the mission of the church. This is what we are called to do. So the mission of South Shore Baptist Church, your mission is very clear. The goal of this church should be to make disciples, period. And when I go over to Abu Dhabi and I start pastoring evangelical community church, I already know the mission statement in my mind of what that church is to be about, making disciples. And when Seth goes to Haggadah in southern Egypt, and, and by God's grace we're praying that he will be able to start an English speaking service there and English-speaking ministry in that, that place with all the opportunities there. Seth already knows the mission of his church. It is to make disciples of all nations. That's what we do. That's not my vision for the church. That's not the elder's vision for the church. That is God's, Jesus's commandment to the church. It's our mission together to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything 
I've commanded to raise up a people from all nations for the praise and the glory of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. So why am I sharing this with you today? Why, why these two texts, as, as we come to the parting of our ways, as we come to the moment when, when we will say goodbye and you will go into a different future and I will go into a different future, why is this text important? And it's important because there is always, always a huge temptation for churches in an interim period to shrink back into fear. That is why I am concerned for you that you not shrink back in fear because we are in an interim situation. Have you ever had any of these thoughts over the last few months? Maybe they've gone through your mind or maybe you've articulated them to a friend. Have you ever thought any of these things? What's going to happen when Jeremy and Seth leave? Will the search committee find a pastor that I like? What if they search for like two years and then hire a guy and he's the wrong guy? And then it's like a mess, and then we've got to wait two more years to find another guy. Ugh. I wonder what's going to happen to church attendance during the interim period. And then, closely related to that, are we going to make a budget during the church interim period? Who else on staff is going to leave our church? What if this search process drags on a long time? What's going to happen here? Are we going to lose momentum? How many changes can this church handle anyway? I wonder if our church will get off track theologically. Maybe you have your own questions. Those are some legitimate questions, frankly. I don't think they're bad questions. It's not wrong to think those things. I think those things myself. Here's my concern. It's one thing to ask real questions and to have legitimate concerns but something happens where it, it goes from asking questions to where the, the kind of attitude and posture and outlook and mindset of a church and of a people goes from just kind of like, yeah, we got some concerns and questions and issues, we always do, to a kind of culture and climate of worry and fear, where, where fear and discouragement starts to mark the culture and quality of, of your vision as a church, for your church. You, know, you, you, you are the ones who are ultimately going to be setting the tone and, and culture of this church together. That's something you do together. And if it becomes fear, then that's it's a dangerous thing because then we start pulling back from what Christ is calling us to do. You know, the Great Commission doesn't go on hold just because you've got a couple want ads up. Right? You've got the same senior pastor here you've always had, He's the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just an under-shepherd, you know? I'm an under-shepherd at best, and a fairly lousy one compared to the Jesus. You have Jesus. He's the head of the church. His mission is still the same. He's not like, I'm with you as long as the senior pastor is with you. I mean, he's like, I'm with you. You need to go and make disciples. What happens when we start functioning out of a place of fear instead of faith in the presence of Christ is, is there's this kind of devolution that can take place in the culture of a church. So, like, so here, here's the first step. Here's kind of a three-step 
devolution. Step number one is we, we sort of shrink back into conservatism. I'm really worried that this church will become conservative. I don't want you to be conservative. Let me clarify. <laughs> I'm not talking about how you vote in November. I, I'm, I, I'm making no political comment. I'm making no theological comment. I'm not talking about theological conservatism. I hope you always stay theologically conservative. By that I mean believing that the Bible is truly the word of God and that the historic Christian faith is what you hold to. In that sense, yes, never stop being conservative. But what I mean by conservative is just kind of like the most basic sense of that word, conserving. You know, instead of like moving forward, you know, when you're conserving, you're like, all right, we're going to pull back, tighten things up, be a little cautious, well, let's not take risks. And, and a kind of like clamping down on on vision and courage and risk-taking and, and finances and decisions where, where kind of your default mode is like, mm-hmm, I don't know, and, and, and we start to kind of try to control things and get everything underneath our, our ability to control. You know, don't we love to control things in times of change and fear? And like sometimes we'll just like grab one little random thing and we just obsess on that thing. You're like, why are you obsessing on that? It's like, because it's nice to feel like I can control one thing, you know? And we're just like, oh, I got this under control. And, you know, the world is going, and we're like, and so we do that. We just obsess on things. And like, why am I obsessing on that? Why, why am I so like uptight about that thing? And it's probably because I just feel like I'm out of control. I don't want to control one thing. It's like, I just need to pretend that I am God. Right? I, I just, I don't let me know. I, I don't want to know the truth that I'm not God. That I'm not the master of my own fate and blah, blah, blah. I, I can't believe that. I, I have to pretend that I'm God. And so, we got to let go of that. Just be like, man, we never were in control of anything. God is, is the, the leader of the church. But then if, if that continues, if that kind of conservative, so, so you know, just kind of a, a leaning out, a leaning back, but, but if conservatism keeps going, keeps going, it can, it can turn into a kind of survivalism. And survivalism is even worse. You know, you know have you ever seen, heard of these people who are preppers? Right? And they're worried about the end of the world. And so like you go in their basement and there's like a year's worth of freeze-dried food and they have gold like buried under the cement and you know, they have a, a nice collection of AK-47s and you know, how to survive a zombie apocalypse book and all this stuff. And, 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 and you can just get more and more afraid till, till then when you're in a survival mode, it's even worse than conservatism because then you're just like... It just becomes completely self-focused. Like, I just got to hold on to a few things to survive. Like, everything's going to fall apart. And when you're in survival mode, you just pick a few things, and you hold on to them tightly, and you get your little pet issues, your pet things. And, and now you're not even looking out at all. I mean, you're, you're not even looking in the church. You're just kind of holding out for yourself. And then the final step of the devolution is, is this is when churches fall apart. It's called tribalism because you start bumping into a few other people in the church who are surviving and who have the same issue as you. And now little groups in the church start forming of people with common fears, like this sort of post-apocalyptic tribal survival thing. <laughs> and you know, you, you find the other people in the church who, who are also trying to hold on to control, and, and their issue is, you know, what time is the worship service? And you're like, <laughs> hypothetically. Then you find some other people in the church. What's going to happen with the children's ministry? And that's like your little thing you hold on to. And you get some other people who are like, what about the budget? 
I'm a budget guy. And then, then the church is like all these little like survival groups that are all like got their spears out and afraid. And this is what happens, right? Because we've lost our vision to be disciple making, which is to go take the land. That's what unifies us as a church. Not that we all agree on the kind of music we like, or not that we all agree on circumstances or curriculum. I mean, you know, we all have a million different opinions about everything. But the thing that pulls us together is, is Jesus and our mission. Look, those, there's a lot of people here who are leaders in the business world, in the academic world, not in the community. Some of you are managers. You lead big teams. You lead organizations. This is like leadership 101. If you want to pull people together on a team, how do you do it? They have to have a common objective. That's number one. That's the difference between, you know, if you want to talk organizational theory, that's the difference between a working group and a team is a team has a shared objective that the whole team's like, we're all doing that, right? You know, the the way you bring unity is not by clamping down and micromanaging and, and command and control. That just like freaks people out. The way you build unity is you all say, we're going there, then everyone's like, yeah, that's where we're going. And then, you know, you're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about your issues. You're, you're like, woo, let's go for that. And so we need to be a church that keeps the main thing, the main thing, which is to make disciples of all nations so that we're all in. We're all on board with that. And everything else then takes its proper place and proportion. What will it look like for South Shore Baptist Church to be a disciple-making church in the interim? What will it look like for us to... Let me, let me change the way I phrase that. What will it look like for us to obey Jesus during the interim period and to be his people and to follow his command? Let me just suggest three ways this could look really practically for you over the next months. Here's one. Just continue to be an open and friendly church to the people around you. You know? Like, just start, start right here Sunday morning. You know, there's new people here today. Did you know that? There's new people here today who are really new to our church who really don't even care that I'm leaving. <laughs> They're like, oh, your pastor's leaving? Oh, whatever. You know? But they, they don't care. They're not part of the story. That They're here and they're new. And, and if we're like, you know, conservatism, survivalism, tribalism, that the last thing we're thinking about are the new people. Because we're like, you know, we're worried. And if you've ever been to a church, this has got to, you have had, maybe had this experience. You go to a church and you walk in and you sit through the service and you talk to people and you get in the car to leave and, and you look at, you know, the person you came to church with and you're like, do you think something's wrong with that church? Like, it just kind of felt like there was just this like, kind of dark cloud. Are they having problems? I couldn't put my finger on it. Yeah, I know. What is it? And you just know there's like some issue in the church. You don't know what it is, but here's what you know. The people just were weird, and they weren't friendly, and they weren't kind, because when you're going through a big issue and a crisis, again, it's very natural. You pull back, and you're not thinking about people around you because you're thinking about survival. And and, and so it's like, yeah, the thing you notice in a church that's going through struggles is there isn't a lot of energy and love going outward to people around you. 
And there's new people here today. I mean, I know there's some new folks here today. Because just every Sunday, they keep coming. We keep meeting them at the welcome desk. We keep getting cards from visitors. It's great. And so South Shore Baptist Church, just, just keep focusing on that. Don't worry. Oh, hmm. I'm just like, well, you know, they can't fire me. So, um, <laughs> Look, during the interim, you need to stop worrying about church attendance numbers. In fact, I, I, would, I would counsel the elders to order the staff. This is my opinion. Stop taking attendance during the interim. Stop counting and start loving. Love the people. Don't count the people. Like, get to know them and love them. I just think, I'm, I'm just really concerned about that. It's like numbers are just another thing we feel like we can control. You can't control it. Like, all numbers do is when numbers go down, then you get panicked. Then when numbers go up, you just get arrogant and complacent. So during this interim, just focus on loving the people, not, not counting the people. But then it doesn't stop there. It goes outward. It's not just Sunday morning. We don't just wait for people to walk in to make disciples. Of course, we have to go, right? And so I would encourage you during this interim period, here's number two of three thoughts. Number two is during this interim period, I would encourage every member of this church every member of this church to be praying that God would bring one one person into your life, maybe they're already there, that you can pray for, maybe share the gospel with, maybe invite to church, maybe invite to a growth group, maybe ask if they want to read the Bible one-on-one, and just be like, Lord, I pray that during this interim I could share the love of Christ and the message of the gospel with one person, just one Man, if all of us were on that kind of a mission over the next whatever, however long your interim period is going to be, that's, like, think about how many people are here and how much, how much gospel work that would be all over the South Shore. I've been really encouraged by, um, he, he said I could share this story, I've been encouraged by Mark Lundquist. He, he just had an opportunity to kind of fall into his lap through some, some relationships he has um, in our church, and he got invited to come just meet some guys at a sober house in Dorchester and to, to go there and, and to do a Bible study. And so he's like, okay. <laughs> and he was there this week. Ten guys came, you know, guys just whose lives are completely, like, you know, burned to the ground by their own choices. And he's just going there. And, like, you know what they need at a sober house? They just need someone who, like, is consistent and who will open the Bible with them. They don't need a PhD or an MDiv. They just need like, someone who will be there and open the Bible and explain the basic things. And Mark's been going and, and meeting with those guys. Like, I mean, just a challenge to the bros here, to all the guys. If, if someone came to you and said, there's a sober house in Dorchester, and, and I know you're a Christian, could you just go there every week and like, open the Bible? What would you do? Would you be like, well, I mean, Dorchester? Like, my Audi might get scratched, you know. I like. know. Man, be strong and courageous. Just go. God gives you an opportunity. Take it. Look for those who pray, and then don't be surprised when God answers a door, opens a door. Then, like, just go. And so number three, number one is just be in, continue being an open church here. 
Don't get all snarled up in your own preferences, but man, keep your heart open to people who are here. Go out beyond the, the doors of this church. Pray, just pray that everyone have one person this year they'd be reaching out to. And then number three, and this is the final one, I'll close with this. Just keep praying that our church could be a part of church planting on the South Shore. Because ultimately, this great commission is a church planting commission. Have you ever noticed in Matthew 28 the profoundly church-shaped nature of Matthew 28? Have you ever noticed it? Look again. Therefore, go, verse 19. Well, going from where? Who's sending you? Churches send people, right? And make disciples of all nations. The disciples, plural. The disciples are a community. I mean, here, even, he, even here, Jesus' disciples are 12 guys. They're a community, right? Baptizing them. Who baptizes people? Churches baptize people. It, it's a way of saying publicly, this person used to be outside the kingdom of God, and now they're publicly declaring themselves inside the kingdom of God. They're putting on the jersey of Jesus. They're publicly saying, I used to be in this world, and now I'm with this world with these people who are recognizing me as a fellow Christian. And then teaching them to obey. Where does that happen? It happens in churches where there are pastors and shepherds and people with gifts using their gifts. So this whole thing is church-shaped. Not only that, but if you want to, how about this? Where in the Bible, here's a quiz, where in the New Testament do we actually see the Great Commission unfolding? What book? We actually see the story of it unfolding. Acts. Acts is where you see the Great Commission happening. What's the pattern? They go, they preach the, preach the gospel, disciples are made, disciples are baptized, disciples are congregated, and he leaves a church. And then Paul goes on, and he comes back to the church, and he puts elders in the church because they need people who can actually teach the word to keep building up the disciples. Rinse, repeat, world without end, forever and ever, amen. That's the plan. And so I would just encourage you as a church to really, to, to really have a vision and a passion for church planting, even in the interim. Because it's the same mission. Keep it up. You know, I've been here uh, as your senior pastor for 18 and a half years and been reflecting on my years here. You know, just my heart is full of reflections and thoughts. And it's like, like 90% all just happy, happy, happy. So many happy memories here which makes it hard to go, but I have regrets. Anytime you look on your past, you have regrets, right? Any parents here ever have any regrets? <laughs> you know, and pastors have regrets. I'm going to show you a regret of mine. I regret deeply that I did not lead you more intentionally and aggressively to plant a church on the South Shore while I was your pastor here. I have failed you in that. And that's like, Ugh. And part of that is just my own development. I, I, I didn't really get the vision until <laughs> kind of late in the game, which is kind of the story of my life in a lot of ways. I just feel like I've always been kind of a late bloomer on things, just getting things. I'm just like, what? But, um, you know, I used to think church planting was an option. You know, some churches do it, some churches don't. Some churches are church planting churches, some churches aren't. Some churches, that's their thing, some churches not. And then I went to seeing it as kind of like a positive. Well, actually, it's kind of a good thing to do. And then I, I, over the years, I kind of evolved to where I was like, wow, that's a really important, that's a really strategic thing to do. And now I've just come to the conviction, especially in the last couple of years, like, you know what? 
that's what we're supposed to do. That's how the mission progresses. And, uh, and I see that. I mean, it's just, you know, that, yeah, yeah, there, there are churches that, that have no vision for church planting, and they're just called disobedient churches. And I've been a disobedient pastor, and, and I repent of that. I, I'm excited to go to Abu Dhabi and have a chance to be in a church that actually has planted two churches so I can kind of get up to speed and see how to do this. Um, I just encourage you to keep planting churches. That's how the gospel grows. That is plan A. And you can be at it and praying about it right now. Do you know in the town of Hull how many evangelical Protestant gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches there are? Anyone know? Zero. Correct. Journeying with me down the coast, Cohasset. How many gospel Preaching, evangelical, Protestant, Bible teaching churches, evangelical churches, are there in Cohasset? Zero. Since Easter. That's right. Let's go further. Situate. Gospel, preaching, evangelical, Protestant, Bible believing churches in Situate. I actually know of one. Praise God. We know of one. There could be more. I could be wrong. There could be one we don't know about. I'm not omniscient. 35,000 people live in whole Cohasset and Situate. I'm not talking about Dorchester. I'm not talking about Abu Dhabi. I'm talking about like, you know, where, where, places where you would be like, what do you want to go out to eat tonight? Like, oh, let's go to Hull. There's great restaurants. You know, it's places you would go. They're right, like places where some of you live. You know, we need to be like, we need churches there. Maybe you're like, why do we need to plant a church there? Why don't we just start a second service at South Shore and they can come here? Seriously? (laughs) I don't even know what to say. They need churches there. They need a lot of churches there. We need to plant like three more churches and hang them. You know? Oh, it's right here, people. And it, it, it doesn't take a massive amount of planting. Planting churches is, is actually easier than I think we think. It's actually cheaper than we think. And, you know, we, we can do this. Why? Because he is with us to the very end of the age. That's why. Not because we're some ninja planting, church planting church. It's because Jesus is with us. So don't be afraid Don't shrink back. Don't stop making disciples. Don't fall back into conservatism and fear and tribalism and all that other isms. Be bold and courageous. I have a dream. I have a dream. And it's of 20 years from now. This is my dream. It's a glorious Baptist business meeting. I know you don't usually think of those phrases together. (laughs) Glorious and business meeting. But I'm envisioning an awesome business meeting in this church where the motion before the congregation is to change the name of the church. And some of you are like, yes, we're finally going to take Baptist out of the name. (laughs) Nope. I want to take something else out of the name. South Shore. What if 20 years from now we could vote to make this church Hingham Community Church. 
because by God's grace, we don't need to be South Shore because there's churches in Hull now that are our friends. And there's churches in Situate that are our friends, and churches in Cohasset that are our friends, and churches in Norwell that are friends that, that we're encouraging and praying for. And, and, and we could just say, like, you know, our, our mission has now been to, to encourage those churches, but then to just say, how can we get more, you know, indigenous to Hingham itself? Which I think is a great strategy in Massachusetts where people so strongly identify with their town. And so what if someday we could vote and God would make us a local church even more so? It could happen. But for it to happen, it has to start this morning. You can't wait 10 years to do this. It's got to start this morning. And it starts with just us being like, Lord, I want to be your servant to do whatever it is to advance your glory. And it can happen because he is with us to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for rescuing us from slavery to sin. Oh, God, we were under your curse and judgment, but we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who bore our curse and our judgment on the cross. And through him, we have walked out of Egypt with our heads held high because of your grace and your power. And so, Lord, we now stand yet again every day at the edge of the Jordan, being called to go to all the nations and make disciples. And, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage, that you would give us faith. I pray for South Shore Baptist Church, that, that we would not be those who shrink back, but those who surge ahead. That, Lord, give us a broad vision. Lord, I pray that you would, you would just banish fear from this church. Lord, banish anxiety from this church. And may this church be full of gospel courage of people who are flipping the calendar of their lives and saying, there ain't much time left. We need to be about the work. Oh God, save us from fear and unbelief and make us a bold people. Make us a people who get most fired up about you, Jesus, and your gospel. Oh, Lord, awaken this sleeping giant, I pray. God, may there be more churches. May there be more churches in Hull and the Situate and Cohasset and all of our towns. God, give us a bigger vision than just going to kids' soccer games and shopping at Derby Street. Oh, Lord, we need a big vision of what life is about. And so I pray that you would pour out that vision on this church in great power, Lord that these people would be sold out for the gospel. Oh, Lord, do a great work among them. Thank you that they are being called to an exciting adventure and mission. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up a new senior pastor for this church who would both tremble at your word and who would be sold out for making disciples and for planting churches. Lord, bring a church planting pastor who could pick up the baton that I have dropped Oh, Father, make it so, I pray. And now, Lord, be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.